Welcome to Our Social Impact. This is Dirk Van Velzen, and I'm Executive Director of the Prison Scholar Fund, where we have a mission of providing education and employment assistance to help incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of incarceration. Today we have Brent Orell, the resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. I've admired the work of uh, a, I have admired the work of AEI for many years. I've uh, had been in DC for about 30 years, including 14 on Capitol Hill and eight in the George W. Bush administration. And then I was a consultant uh, and I'd always followed the Institute's work very closely, really liked it. Uh, and um, the opportunity came up that they were looking for somebody who uh, knew something about workforce development, which is part of my background, and somebody who knows something about uh, prisoner reentry, um, which I also knew something about. Um, I wouldn't claim to be an expert in the sense that uh, I have, uh, I don't have a PhD, I haven't um, run studies, uh, randomized controlled trial studies of either workforce development or um, or prisoner reentry, but I do have a strong interest in it, and I spent a lot of time working on it. Is it resident scholar? I mean, you're you're there full time. Yeah, I'm, I'm at AEI full time. Okay. Yeah. And did you go there under the workforce development angle, and then became criminal justice reporter? It, it was really both. Um, they were looking for a scholar to replace um, another really good guy, Jordan Robinson, who had been at AEI for a couple of years. Uh, and he had spun off his own nonprofit work um, that he was going to do in education, so they needed somebody to work on that issue. They also, uh, AEI had also, um, especially over the last five years or so, really gotten into the workforce space uh, because it's so critical to economic mobility um, and some of the challenges that we're facing as a country um, of people um, not having access to good. Uh, family sustaining jobs. So I care about both of those things. I work in both of those things. Uh, and so that's how I wound up there. Now you guys are all over the place because I met Gerard, I think I met him in Denver mm-hmm. in one of your bridging divide summers. Right. And I met him uh, about a month after that in DC. Mm-hmm. He was hosting a briefing for the Bring the Pell Grant back. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, and we're part of that coalition of organizations. Uh, actually, AEI as an organization doesn't take positions on issues, only scholars take positions on issues. But uh, so I, I uh, and that's uh, Gerard is an important part of that uh, effort that's going on in DC to try to. Um, Change the law around Pell grants for prisoners. And did you guys, did you continue some of the work you developed, or did you come with your own agendas to work on? You know, I think it's always uh, everybody brings their own kind of angle on this. Um, my angle, I, I can't really speak too much to sort of Gerard's uh, angle, although I will say that he's gone into education work um, after he left AEI. Uh, so I think that's like where his main interest is, is, and I know he came out of education policy. So I come out of workforce uh, policy and poverty policy. So those are kind of the way that, that I take on the issue. I'm really interested in um, what we know about and what we can do about the conditions that give rise to um, communities. Uh, I, I, that give rise to communities experiencing a high impact from um, 
uh, people returning from prison. Um, my own introduction to the issue, I really didn't know very much about reentry. I, uh, I was uh, working on Capitol Hill. I came to the Labor Department. Uh, it was right before 9-11 happened. Um, and so before we could even really get started on anything, there was 9-11 and that emergency sort of took over everything um, that was happening. And uh, I used to use that as an opportunity to go out and try to get my hands around what was going on in the United States, you know, meeting with community leaders and people who lead organizations like yours, actually. Um, and the, the issue that kept coming up over and over again was this thing called reentry. Uh, reentry, reentry, which is a big problem where communities, community leaders saying to me, well, we're, we're knitting as fast as we can here, trying to hold this community together. And we've got, uh, we're being inundated by people coming home from prison and they are undoing our work. They're unraveling faster than we can knit. Uh, and we really need, needs, we need something uh, to break that cycle. So what they told me was that employment was a huge issue. Uh, you know, for people coming home from prison, we, you know, that was, uh, no one had really uh, made much progress on the ban the box issue. Um, there was a lot of actual and perceived discrimination um, against people who had criminal records. Um, and so while other people were over here kind of working on the let's change the law side, I was like, okay, what can we do on the other side? You know, like, how can we better support the people who are trying to make this transition? Um, we're Republicans. We have access to employers. They'll Maybe they'll listen to us. Maybe they will be more willing to engage if, if it's a Republican administration talking to them rather than a Democratic administration. So we had some focus groups um, with employers to try to get them to talk a little bit um, about what it was uh, that was the main obstacle to them hiring people with criminal records. And what we found, we would sit down with them and, okay, we get it. This is a risk, right, for you to hire somebody who's been in prison. Uh, if you know, if an employer knowingly hires somebody with a felony record, and that person commits a crime, another crime, say against another employee or against a customer, it's a huge liability issue for them. And that's what it turned out. That's what it was. It wasn't that they didn't want to be good citizens. They didn't want to, you know, extend an opportunity to people who are trying to restart their lives. They're completely into all of that. But the liability issues are really um, creating a big problem for them. So. How do you deal with that? Right? How do you deal with that? Yeah. So I know there's those tax incentives. Well, that uh, that had that was already in existence uh, when I arrived on the scene, uh, and um, things like the federal bonding program were also available. Um, but when we asked employers about those incentives, what they said to us was, "Those are really not the place to start the conversation." Um, like to say to somebody. Uh, we will pay you to hire this person immediately kind of that doesn't sets, change the risk picture. yeah it doesn't change the risk picture and it sets off this kind of alarm bell and then you say and, I, and, and here and here's this uh, special insurance that I've got 
We know um, it's going to be risky. Yeah. Here's some things to mitigate it. Yeah, and here's, it's risky, and, and we're reminding you uh, of how risky it is. That's um, interesting. Yeah, so that those programs um, were not very appealing on their own to employers, right? So what we proposed as an alternative was, what if um, somebody coming home from prison uh, came to you via a community organization, you know, somebody, uh, an organization that was uh, that specialized in dealing with all of the non-work-related barriers that people coming home from prison have. Right? They're going to help with the transportation. They're going to help with the housing. They're going to help with the uh, uh, um, you know referrals to substance abuse, mental health, or whatever it is that somebody coming from prison might need. And, the needs are often quite extensive, um, as, you, as you know. So, <clears throat> what you can see in those focus groups is when you started introducing those ideas, the anxiety levels began to fall. You know, it's like, well, what you and what it was was that when you come home from prison, you've been in prison, you've broken faith with everybody. If you've gone to prison, you've broken faith with your family, and you've broken faith with the community, with business, with schools, everybody has had enough of you, right? <laughs> right, so... And a lot of times more than once. Yeah. Okay. So to have an organization say, look, we're working with this person, they've made a change, they want uh, they want to do right by themselves, by their families, by the community, by your business. Um, and then the person is no longer just this free radical, you know, I completely isolated on their own. In this example, you might have people that join those programs to, that want to change their lives, which would be a different person than the one that doesn't join the program, right. which would be the one that really maybe needs the help. Yeah. So how do you kind of help the highest risk group that's probably most likely to be a fan? Because maybe the people that join those programs are kind of already got their head on straight, yeah. Yeah. and they might not reoffend. Right, right. So there's a huge issue. There's always a big issue of like um, selection bias in these programs. Um, so people are messy. Like, how do you how do you right. account for the selection bias? Right. Uh, well, typically, what you do to account for selection bias is use randomized assignment. So you take a group of people and you divide them in half. They're 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 roughly the same types of people. Maybe they've committed some of the types of crimes. Maybe they you know they they kind of to the naked eye or to the research eye kind of look like similar similarly risky. Similar, uh, sorry, similar levels of risk, and you divide them up, and half of the people get the program, and the other half don't get the program, and then you compare their outcomes, and you decide, you know, like did the did the intervention make any difference? Um, we didn't do that because we didn't have the resources for a randomized control trial. We just wanted to see if maybe this might be helpful, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, it looked pretty good the first few years. Um, we saw substantially lower rates of reoffending among people taking part in this than kind of the the general world. But we didn't control. We weren't doing a control trial, so we couldn't say just evaluating the data. Yeah, it was just it's just program data. We're just looking for it. It looks pretty good for the first couple of years, and then the more the further out that you get, uh, the the lower the positives were. They began everything sort of reverted to the to the mean. Even oh, a lot, even in this 
sort of bias sample. You don't break the cycle. Even for from good. people that were relatively maybe more motivated, um, still wasn't working. Um, so they're doing okay for a couple of years and yeah. just kind of fall back to old patterns. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, even in randomized control trials where there's a, there's a fade out in terms of the impact uh, over time, um, and that even more kind of challenging from my perspective is that it's possible to make the case that the control groups, people who don't receive services in these randomized control trials, are doing about as well and maybe even a little bit better than people who get services. Fascinating. Yeah. So, so, so what happens there? So, uh, and this is kind of uh, the direction that my work at AEI has taken around this issue, which is we don't know whether that's uh, whether that's some sort of weird artifact of the research, whether it's an actual thing that we need to pay attention to. But the pattern is consistent enough that we at least need to take it into consideration. Like, is there, is there something that we're doing um, that is actually making the problem worse? For some people. So almost like the Hawthorne effect, just like studying them makes them misbehave? Or, uh, uh, or Possibly the Hawthorne effect, or it could be that, and this is, the, this is kind of the intuition that I'm working off right now, is maybe we're not, um, maybe we don't know as much as we need to know, and maybe it's not possible to know enough to really help people based on their individual circumstances through kind of a centralized program. What if we took a different approach um, that really tried to leverage um, people who are returning from prison, uh, leverage their own capacity to sort of understand their own lives and make decisions about their own lives? Um, so what would that look like? Okay, so good question. Well, before yeah. we get there, too, yeah. like, what kind of studies did you evaluate? Was like a meta-analysis? Can you review a lot of other existing So studies? we assembled a working group of um, researchers. We're going to be issuing a report here in the next month uh, on sort of what that working group, what that conversation was like. We actually didn't come to a consensus on what we ought to do about this, but we, we assembled these researchers, people who had worked for decades um, in mostly PhD, um, social scientists, economists, um, people who work around this issue, studied a lot of programs. And so we we brought them together and, and we kind of talked this through. And um, so that insight that I mentioned about like the control groups doing as well, I and mean, sometimes a little bit better than the treatment groups, can't, uh, came from a, a researcher um, who'd been, who's been doing this for like 35 years. Um, and has, she studied the SPORI program, the Serious and Violent Offender Initiative out of the Department of Justice from the 1990s. She studied a number of other, of other major uh, reentry initiatives, and she's the one who brought this forward and said, you know, um, this is really a challenge to us um, that not only, not only are we not helping, it looks like we may be getting in the way a little bit um, for some people, in terms of their ability to um, uh, successfully transition, huh? So it, it was a real 
it was a real there was a lot of silence in the room around that conversation. Yeah, it seems like there's tons of data that does support some things work. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like you could probably have a big data battle to see whose data, yeah. which which data set you're looking at, which programs you're evaluating. Right. Is it education transition? Right. Yeah. Right. Like, so, like the education, the data around education. You know, the RAND study is probably the best thing out there. Um, you know, there's there's data around um, case management for some populations seems to make a difference. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, especially if you live in Sweden or Norway, seems to make a big difference. Um, uh, that's where the, most of those those studies are. It's funny because if you want to compare it for uh, those those Norwegian or the Scandinavian countries, mm -hmm. the culture is so different. Yeah. I was talking to we have a Google volunteer, and he's from the Netherlands, and he was saying the reason that homelessness doesn't really exist in Sweden, for example. Is because if you're homeless, people right. run up to you and say, right. "What is going on? What is wrong with you? Let's help." Mm -hmm. It's a totally different uh, social fabric of people supporting each other. So there's a there's a famous anecdote from um, Milton Friedman, the you know the conservative economist, and he was meeting with the prime minister of Sweden many many years ago. I don't even know who the prime minister was, but they were talking about the issue of poverty, and and the Swedish prime minister said, "Well, that in Sweden we don't really have." Poverty, you know, uh, and Friedman responded, "Yes, we've noticed that among Swedes in America too. They aren't poor, you know. Like there's something in the culture of Sweden that insulates people against poverty, and some people have traced it back actually just how difficult it was to survive uh, in in those communities in uh, in the medieval uh, period and, and later. Oh, interesting, like the work ethic." You know, everybody you had to has, be a tight community. To yeah, you had to be a tight community to survive, and you had to work really hard. Um, so, uh, so that's why you know it's like, well, can we really transfer any of that knowledge? You know, based on cultural differences. And people would also say they have so many support services because they tax them at like seventy percent. I don't yeah. know what the tax rate really is yeah. over there. Yeah. Uh, I was just reading yesterday. I think that the, um, I think it's about eighty, actually eighty percent. Yeah, uh, so but you get, you know, you're getting you, you just your whole life paid for, basically, uh, via government programs. So, so you really can't compare that, because I don't think that would fly in America. No, no, that, that <laughs> definitely wouldn't fly. And, and just to back on the reentry issue, I mean, it's like there aren't that many people in prison in Scandinavia in countries, yeah. right? So everybody gets their own psychologist, you know, like a dedicated no person. Well, it's a, it, you know very intensive treatment of, of people in prisons. More of a safety. Like, we, we see you're here, we're, we yeah. want to know why. Oh, yeah, we're we, here yeah. to help you. Like you're kind of a, you're an oddity. Yeah, and, what happened? Uh, yeah, what happened to you? And, <laughs> and how can we make it better? Yeah. You know, and, and how can we make you better? Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, anyway, so you're right. There is something called the What Works Literature around reentry, and there are these individual elements of programs that seem to make a difference. Like I said, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, mentoring, uh, family visits seem to make a difference. Um, you know, if you're visited by your family in prison, uh, those people seem to do better um, when they when they get out. Uh, mental, uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment seem to make a difference um, in terms of reducing recidivism. So there are these individual things Right, that sometimes seem to help some populations. Case management seems to do better with um, 
can't remember whether it's with juveniles, it's either juveniles or adults that do that seem to show some results around case management. I can't remember which, but one of the other group doesn't. Okay, so we've got these they've got these individual things that sometimes seem to make a difference. What we don't have is evidence of sort of coordinated uh, interventions that attempt to that that set out with their goal of trying to keep people from coming back from prison and their kind of coordinated longitudinal interventions. That there's no evidence around those programs right now that they that they do better than not doing anything. Um, and that's a problem in the long term, right? It's a little hard to go to the taxpayer and say keep funding this stuff when we don't have anything that says it's working. Um, now um, some of the folks on our working group um, say, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater on this. There are things that work. We need to keep trying. We need we need better data. We need um, more faithful implementation of programs. That's one of the big issues. It's like if you get something that that you think works and then you hand it off to somebody, try to get them to do it, you can't get it to replicate. Yeah. Right. So because they're not doing it right, um, or they leave out certain elements, they modify yeah, it. Yeah. So from someone really passionate about the subject to maybe an administrator. Yeah. Or just like there's somebody who says, well, I think this thing has four elements, A, B, C, and D, but we don't really like C, we don't think it works. We're not gonna do C, we're only gonna do A, B, and D. Um, and then are you really testing the same thing at that point? You're not testing, the you're testing a new model. Well, it didn't the new model didn't work, right? So was it, oops, sorry, was it because we left C out or is there some other confounding factor in that? It's very difficult. Social, social science research, it's it's just very difficult to isolate what's going on and really get to the bottom of you know why it worked here and didn't work there. So, uh, so the art the argument for, um, for among some of the scholars on our working group was we just need to keep trying. We keep need to be better about how we implement. We need to we need to collect better or different data, and we need, to, we need to be more patient, that sometimes you don't see this in the first, you don't see the results in the first three years, you see them in years four, five, and six. Uh, we need to, um, we need to be more realistic about what we can expect out of uh, these programs. We need to define success differently, right? So it's going back, we're saying unless somebody doesn't, doesn't go back to prison, this is failed. But what if we're lengthening the time between episodes of incarceration? Does that count as success? Um, so that's sort of one side of this argument um, among our research team. And, and I am, I'm willing to entertain all of that. You know, we can do better. We can implement more faithfully. We can... Um, we can, we we can collect data differently. We can we can read we can redefine the problem in ways that we maybe we can see some positive effects. So I'm willing to uh, totally willing to go down that path. While we're doing that, um, I'm interested in seeing if there is an alternative that really focuses on building up the capacity of people who are in prisons. To make decisions about and guide their own lives, right? Because um, I always say to people that 
Um, reentry is a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, reentry, uh, reentry is a jigsaw. It's got all sorts of different possible combinations. It's like a Rubik's cube, uh, and every prisoner has their own puzzle, right? So, what works for me might not work for you or that person over there because they've got something in their lives, something, some different experience um, that means that what works for me isn't going to work for them. So what I what we're going to put out on the table, AI, me as a scholar, I am as a scholar, is a proposal that we try to combine the individual elements that we see have to have positive effects: case management, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, substance abuse, mental health services, we, we try to combine those things into a single pre-release program that would be kind of like what we've seen a little bit on with some of the faith-based work where you, you create a, a Muslim unit or a Christian unit or, you know, some or tra a transcendental meditation unit where people go into that unit and they are immersed in that. So we have a supportive community. Yeah, a, a therapeutic, right, a supportive therapeutic community. Everybody's on the same page, pursuing the same philosophy, uh, but we do that with cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is very effective in helping people with eating disorders and helping people with all kinds of life change issues, uh, with anxiety problems, with, you know, all sorts of things. It's effective at helping people develop new coping mechanisms. So let's let's try it with with this population. Yeah. So kind of one idea it might be maybe the programs per se aren't really that effective, but maybe just the attention they're having, the, the human interaction, the community they're building, and kind of when they have that support while they're incarcerated, that's pretty effective. And then when they get out, you have know, the fade out. Yeah. And then once they're in the harsh realities of the real world, yeah, they don't have that community. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I I think that's a I think that's a huge I think that's a huge factor. Uh, I agree completely, uh, you know, that, um, you know, if they don't have a family and they don't have friends and they're just by themselves, right. You know, then what? Right. So this is, this is part two of the project. Yeah. So, um, what I'd like to see is in addition to the CBT process that people are going through at the same time, they're getting coaching. Um, to help them map out a plan for what they're going to do once they get out. You know, like one element I neglected to, to mention was we also want to do risk assessments. You know, like what is it? What are the what are the things that are really going to trip you up um, when once you get out of here? Uh, you know, is it addiction? Is it um, is it uh, lack of community? Is it um, uh, I've got a serious anger management problem or I've got a substance abuse problem. These are the things that are likely to get in the way of a successful transition. So you kind of identify those uh, while you're going through the CBT process. And then you've got a, a coach that's helping you design a plan. But it's really your design. You know, it's, the, it's the prisoner's design. This is what I think will make the biggest difference for me. You take some ownership yeah. in crafting their future. Right, because I think that for many people who have been in prison, 
not all certainly, but many who have been in prison, they've been subject to government interventions for a long time. And people have really, you know, it, it, it may have started out uh, in, with child protective services when they were kids and then progressed to uh, the public school system trying to do stuff to, you know, address what, these emerging problems. Then there was juvenile justice trying to divert kids away from criminal activity. Really, prison is just society's last line of, we don't know what else to do with you. So you've got this coach that's working with you, developing your reentry, you know, working with you. You're developing your reentry plan. You've got ownership. You are maybe, this is one of the few times in your life where somebody has said to you, you, you know, you're really in charge of this. It can't, we can't really do it for you. We can't. We've, we've tried intervening with you, and that's maybe led you to the conclusion that somebody's always going to be there trying to prevent you from doing something that's, that's um, damaging to yourself, self-harming. Now it's your, you have to step up. You have to own this. You have to make it your, it's got to be your plan, right? So you develop this. I own this. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. Combine that in my in this construct that I've, I'm de- trying to develop, you combine that with a voucher that can be used to address the issues in your plan, right? So you have your plan, you have your voucher, and then you probably need a directory of services, right? So here are here are the organizations in the community that are, that provide the kinds of services that you might be interested in going to, but you have to go choose. You have to go to you have to go shop for who it is that you want to help you. Um, it kind of fills the safety net. Of, when I got released, I had a family, I had a dad, mm-hmm. I, I had clothes, or, you know, mm-hmm. people I had support. So yeah. this like they have no support. Right, it's kind of filling the gap of maybe I just need maybe I'm going to use my voucher for um, training at a local community college to get a credential in something. Or so maybe, it's really individualized. Yeah, very. It's very self-directed. Right now, obviously, you have to have somebody signing off on that. It's not a credit card that you can just go and blow on whatever you want. It's, you can see all sorts of trouble there. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to have some accountability. It's on the black market real fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to have some accountability. You know, the money doesn't get released until you've got your coaches sign off that this is legitimate expense. Some kind of case manager to yeah, monitor this process. Yeah, yeah. But. And, and and that case manager should also be there when that person hits the snag, you know, and says, God, I'm really frustrated. I can't I can't find the thing that I need or I've got this other issue I didn't really anticipate. What should I do? So you've got somebody to kind of bounce that stuff off of. And that's actually a, a, a unique relationship between the returning citizen and the case manager yeah. because a lot of times the way that's structured now is it's almost like a gotcha. They're just waiting for that one person to slip up, so they throw them back in prison. Yeah. As opposed to maybe a partnership for success. Yeah. And how do they? How do they really work together, to build that trust to let them know that we're here for you? Yeah, exactly. And I think a, a, a very important element of this is that this isn't just something that's happening. It's not. It's not just the prison system and the guards and the administrators in the prison that need to be involved. It's also the people in the. Um, probation system, parole system that need, they need to be, they need to understand who they're working with because they've heard every story a a thousand times 
very, you know, got a hard shell um, from a lot of disappointment, but they need to be part of the say, all right, this person has this background, they've been prepared in this way, these are the tools that you, this is an additional tool that you as a reentry official have to work with. Um, so they need to be brought into yeah. this continuum as well. It has to be a lot of training involved because yes. as soon as one person confirms their bias, they're going to say, see, we told you yeah, we told, more, yeah, we and told therefore them. we're not going to be a partner in this. Right, right. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. I really uh, and a lot of empathy for the people who work in prisons. If you can imagine, if your career is 20 years being lied to on the, on a daily basis, you're not going to be very sympathetic. Yeah. So it'd be an interesting person that can be a human after all of that. And I think that one of the things I like uh, that I would like to see in the CBT approach is that it's not just the say the um, the prisoners and the therapists who are engaged in this, but it's really everybody who's touching those people in the prison system as well. They're being brought into this therapeutic community as well, because frankly, they're subject to a lot of secondary trauma. You know, they're seeing a lot of bad things um, happening, and uh, I have compassion for that as well as the people who are trying to get their lives straightened out. Um, we're, we're doing a lot of damage to people in prison, and some of the people who are being damaged by it are actually the people who work there. So trying to incorporate everybody into this this therapeutic community, I think, is um, important. Yeah, that's actually an interesting perspective. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm sure you saw it. I'm sure you've yeah. heard about it, you know, like... What does it mean for somebody to show up to work every day to see some really bad behavior um, on an ongoing basis? Um, yeah, it's funny. The uh, there's also this really weird dynamic between the prisoners and the guards. Mm -hmm. um, and once some of the prisoners they realize that they have more in common with the guards than the guards really want to let on because the guards are really the lowest level of the the criminal justice pyramid. You know, they mm -hmm. have the people at the top, but the guards really have to follow order from, from everybody else. Mm -hmm. And so the guards really, their only response is they get to kick the people right right below them, which are the prisoners. And But the prisoners know that. And so when the guards say something like, hey, uh, well, I get to go home, mm -hmm. they'll kind of taunt the prisoner with that, I get to go home statement. Mm -hmm. But the prisoner will come back and say, hey, uh, how many more years do you have until retirement? Mm -hmm. I'm going home next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a lot of prison guards, they're, they're doing 20 years to get their retirement. Yeah, And, yeah. and everyone realizes prison sucks, whether yeah. you're an inmate doing a year or two and you go home, or if you're a prison guard and you're doing 20 years, you're spending eight hours a day in an environment that's terrible with people that don't like you. Right. And even your your uh, supervisors probably don't like you too much. So it's an interesting... And what, and what medicine and psychology tell us about what happens to people who are exposed to that chronically, Yeah. Um, it's not good. Uh, you know, the... You know... The report on the Alabama prison system that came out a few months ago um, just shockingly terrible uh, conditions. Uh, one of those things, not the most important thing, but one of the things that the report found were people who were working, you know, um, stories of guards falling asleep on their feet because they, they're working so much overtime because Alabama won't hire more guards because those guards are long-term expenses to the state of Alabama. They've got, you got to fund retirements and health care and all of that. 
so they don't want to hire any more people. Uh, meanwhile, the prison population is huge. Uh, and um, anyway, I think we need to have we need to have compassion for people in prison, and that includes the people who work there, um, uh, because I, I, I think they're really being traumatized um, by that experience. Who's the guy that just died? Epstein? Epstein, yeah. I think the response from the federal prison system was like, hey, our guys are working 60, 70 hours a week. Yeah. Uh, they don't have the capacity to yeah. monitor everybody all the yeah. time. Yeah. The, the end of all of this is, and this is what, I, what I'm advocating for, is that, so I've, I've articulated a, a different kind of approach. I think it's got a lot of problems, potential problems in it. We know that the existing system it's also got a lot of problems in it. There's lots of room for improvement. There's lots of room for improvement. Is, but what I think we need is experimentation. We know that it's what we're doing isn't working, so we've got to try something new. And it's got to be kind of out of the box, outside the box that we're used to working in. And that's why I want to focus on this agency question, personal agency. Can we do anything around that? And we're about to get into a project with Rand Corporation, actually, looking at how... Um, we can how we might be able to apply something some of what we've learned out of the health um, behavioral health world and apply it in the prisons and uh, prison setting like how do you change diet how do you change exercise behaviors we've learned a lot about that can we apply any of that learning to um, the the incarceration and reentry space so since you have a really ex- exciting experimental program, who yeah. pays for that? Okay. The government likes to pay for programs for for argument's sake should be working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it might right. not be working. But. Right, right. No, I think it's uh, it's another good question. I think you just have to look at all right. We're spending billions. That, that's pretty right? clear. Yeah. yeah, we're spending billions already. Uh, is there a way to take a small fraction of that and apply it to an ex- an experimental model? Um, that would that we could rigorously evaluate and figure out. You know, is this having an impact on that? If it if it doesn't, shut it down. I'm willing to live with that. I don't always believe that the prison industrial complex and the criminal justice industrial complex is willing to live with that. You know, it's not working, so we need to shut it down. That more often than not, the answer is no. I'm not willing to do that. All right, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to put an idea out there, say, let's try it. Um, and See, then if it works, great. If it doesn't work, let's go look for something else. But what's not acceptable to me is that we continue to spend all of this money and not only not help people, but we may actually be making the situation worse. That's, that's a challenge uh, that we need to address. So, like... So this seems to make sense. Okay. And, 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 and a funny story about that is uh, I did a talk at Google, and I, when I kind of mapped out the whole recidivism problem, education seems to reduce recidivism. Everyone knows that, so let's do more of that. And some of the Googlers in the audience were like, I don't get it. They're like, if education works and recidivism seems to reduce, I mean, recidivism drops after education, and it saves a lot of money also. Mm-hmm. So why aren't they doing it? Mm-hmm. They couldn't get their heads around it mm-hmm. until somebody stood up in the audience and said, well, it's because it's the government, and the government isn't logical. Mm. And they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. So then how do we... I, I think that's uh, that's overly simplistic. <laughs> uh, you know, I think um, 
government is a reflection of who we are as a people. Um, and yeah, we have the government we deserve. Yeah, <laughs> or, or something that approximates it. Yeah. Yes. Um, so years ago, we said, you know, no more Pell Grants. If you've committed a crime and you're in prison, what makes you, what, why should we spend any more money on your education? We've spent a lot of money on you already, and we're spending tons more money while we got you in prison. There are a lot of people who haven't committed crimes, and what we're saying is, you know, to those people who play by the rules, that they're not going to get something so that we can give it to you. And, um, and the public found that to be a very compelling argument. And so Congress took that step to eliminate Pell Grants for prisoners. We can now see... Uh, and even but, that argument was flawed because if a prisoner was getting the Pell Grant, it doesn't mean someone else isn't getting it. Right. It's every one of those need bases. Right, right. But it's it's sort of a... a it's, an, it's a... I think it's an easy, sort of cheap shot argument that um, appeals to sort of a populist sentiment yeah, that was during the war on drugs and tough yeah. on crime days. Yeah. Like, they conflated being tough on prisoners or being tough on crime as being tough on criminals. Mm-hmm. So they're being really tough on criminals thinking that was going to affect the, yeah. the crime rates. Yeah. I, there's something in American culture, I think, um, that says once you've committed a crime, you deserve to be punished forever. You know, there we take, at least in the abstract, right? Yeah. When we think about those people, all those thousands of people, millions of people behind bars right now, they've done something really bad and they deserve what they're getting and they deserve to keep getting it. Now, if it's somebody we know, if it's your uncle, your brother, yeah, your, he's okay. Yeah, he's a, he made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it so funny how second chances are personal? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but at the level of kind of um, politics, there's a reason that politicians use those sound bites. It's because they work. Um, they rile people up and they say, damn right, that person needs to go away forever. Um, and nor is that even more reflective in social media posts. Like somebody yeah. will post something and you just see a whole stream of, yeah. you know, this, this onslaught yeah. of terrible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's definitely something in our, in our culture that really likes the idea of the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth, you know, uh, and and a very kind of, um, for lack of a better expression, kind of an Old Testament view of justice. Um, uh, there's not a lot of grace and forgiveness uh, <laughs> out there yeah. um, when it comes to, again, at the abstract level, there's not a lot of grace and forgiveness. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I think that, that that's a, that's a huge barrier to any kind of anything new that you want to try to address crime and recidivism. So how do you change the culture, the punitive culture? One thing that I know doesn't help is to have a lot of programs that fail. Yeah. Uh, then people just say it's hopeless and nothing works. And so we just need to stop doing everything. I, that's not my view. I, that's not what I want. Um, building prisons and keeping people locked up may be the most effective thing on offer. That's not an unreasonable conclusion to reach. I don't think it is. I think it's an incredible waste, not just of 
you know, of money, of dollars, but of lives. Um, and so I, I think we have to keep trying. Um, but it's not unreasonable for people to just walk away um, from the issue. What we can't, what we can't do is just keep throwing money at this and expect the public's patience to be uh, inexhaustible. Yeah, we got to have some wins. Yeah, got to have some wins. So we need to, we need to at least show that we're trying. Yeah, you know, we got. Oh, yeah, let's try this. You know? We're a storytelling culture, anyway. So yeah. if you have a couple wins, a couple of stories, like. Mm-hmm. Maybe that can uh, sway people. Yeah. So it sounds like you have a project in the works right now. What state are you? Uh, well, are you uh, in? I work for a think tank, yeah. so we don't do projects. We come up you with inform. we we come up with ideas okay. and suggest that other people take them on. Uh, and so that's sort of the next stage of this. We'll have a uh, a volume based on the work of our. So we've got this report coming out, which is sort of this is the report on the discussion that happened, and then in the fall. We're going to release a volume of um, essays written by the people on this working group that cover kind of these major topic areas that we've been talking about. And then I'll have a chapter in there that kind of lays out this alternative model. Um, So once we get that done, I'm really hoping that we can interest a couple enterprising governors um, to um, invest in trying it. No. And how does that conversation happen? So you you got this really great idea, and then how do you have a conversation with the governor, or any states come to you and say, "Hey, we have we all have this problem, but we'd like to try something." What do you have in mind? So I mean, I think every governor is looking at this issue. You know, it's a gigantic fiscal issue for states is funding prisons, um, and they are desperate to find ways of emptying these jails uh, in a way that protects public safety that's consistent with public safety. So a couple of governors who want to try to reach out to people who really have taken on board um, this issue um, and see if they're, you know, they're willing to partner with us, get some foundations to help fund it. Um, so that it's not just taxpayer money, but we've got some philanthropic money uh, on the table as well. Some risk capital, so to speak, to yeah. keep this thing off. Especially around the vouchers. Um, I think that it's going to be hard to make the case, like with the Pell Grants, that you know somebody we're going to give you we're going to give somebody coming home from prison a voucher for four, four or five thousand dollars. It's like, hey, I'd like that. My kid would like that. He yeah. hasn't, you know, why, why? So maybe not make that taxpayer funded, but see if we could get a foundation to pay for that. I mean, it kind of makes sense that the government should invest that because on the back end they can save a lot more. They can save. Like, what's the what's the average cost of yeah, so, person? Yeah, so the the oldest argument in government is you got to spend money to save money. Everybody says that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I the think the programs don't always work. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. The programs usually don't work, and then. Um, but then so I think money. so I think getting the private money in there to say, look, this is a risk. We recognize it's a risk. We're trying it. We want the public to fund the stuff behind the wall, and we want private philanthropy to fund the stuff outside the wall. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways of getting this, of trying this, getting it done. And I think... Get uh, a pilot done first. And then yeah, I think we need to have an, uh, some enterprising governors and prison officials who say, yeah, this makes sense to us. We're willing to try it. We're willing to invest. We're, the most important investment that uh, a governor or a, uh, a warden or uh, the system can make is just leadership. You know, it's like it's so easy 
to just say, I, I've got too much to do already, uh, and I don't want to take this on, but, but, you know, if you could get some motivated leaders involved in this, I think that would, that would really help. It says about four or five thousand dollars per, per per person. That's about that's about many? what we're that's about what we're spending in federal reentry programs right now. It's about four or five thousand a head. Actually, we're spending about eight thousand per head. What I'm suggesting is you could probably do this more cheaply because you don't have so much overhead. Okay. And then, how many people would have to be in the program to have significant data? Another good question, and I don't know the answer to it. Um, we'd have to we'd have to ask. Um, you know, people who design research studies for a living to tell us, you know, what's what are the numbers um, that we need to hit in order to have some um, statistical power. And it just as we were talking earlier, people are messy. So how do you, yeah. how do you? Well, I, I but I think that this approach actually takes into account the messiness because what it's, it's what, individualized per person. Yeah, it's and the and the person themselves is really in charge of it rather than. An outside organization, the government, or you know, a nonprofit, whatever it is, it's really driven by the individual who is, like you and I, we're constantly calculating what we need to do next in order to get through our day, to finish our project, to do the next, to to advance what we're trying to do. Um, that we're relying on that. You know, that's the main, that's the the beating heart of this is that we, that I think that. There may be a significant number of people who have, who have or can develop the capacity to make their own decisions uh, and be more successful than we can be for them. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's like an exciting program. Yeah. So, what's your next steps on it? Uh, so, we got to finish this volume, get that published, and then we need to spend some time um, with some governors to see if we can get them to invest leadership resources, maybe some taxpayer money is involved on the some of the behind the wall activities so you got a couple of phone calls you're going to make yeah I got a couple of phone calls a lot, sure, of, sure pleading, you, a lot of begging I don't know if you want to disclose who you're talking to but it sounds like you probably got uh, no I don't I don't want to talk about yeah. anybody that I might be thinking about um, but there are some governors out there who and almost all of them really care about this and some of them are invested in trying to do something different so we'll be talking to them very cool thanks yeah. so much for the chat well, this has been amazing. And we can just chat all day. Yeah, we could. I'm sure we can just keep going going. Um, I'll have you next time you're in Washington. I'll record a podcast with you Absolutely. on the AI site. Perfect. Yeah. Are you hungry? You want to grab some lunch? I do. All right. Okay.